With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here on, uh, what is this, the second full day of summer, and we might even hit 64 degrees today. It's going to be amazing, amazing summer here in the Northwest. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're with us in Skagit uh, with Pastor Brian and, and all the folks down there. It's good to have you uh, as well at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, where it's probably over 64 degrees today. And those of you watching online, thanks for joining us in on this. Last week, if you were with us, uh, we started this new series that will take us in actually almost to the, uh, to the equinox about in September. But we've been looking, we're going to be looking at this letter uh, in the New Testament called Ephesians. And I gave you a... Uh, an assignment, a couple of assignments, a challenge. One was to, to watch the Bible Project overview uh, video, nine-minute video on Ephesians. And for those of you who watched that, especially if you're a visual learner, you know how helpful that was to get kind of a, a picture, the grand picture of what we're going to be studying but also uh, to read this, this short letter. It's just six chapters, a chapter a day. Uh, it's very doable. And the reason I wanted you to do that was not only so you would kind of get a, a, a bigger 30,000-foot view of what we're studying, and not only because it's, it's really, as we said last week, this, this um, distilling of the essence of the Christian faith, but because of our approach to this letter this summer that I don't want us to look at this letter as a 2,000-year-old ancient document that was written to some people that are all dead to a church that no longer exists in a place called Ephesus over in modern-day Turkey. I don't want us to approach it that way. I want us to approach it as a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, but what he had in mind was the church, and specifically our church. In the letter, he starts off this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And as we talked about, this letter was probably not just written to the church in Ephesus. It was written to the big C church, to a lot of churches, because there was truths that he wanted everyone to understand, so we can, under, we can take that and say it's not just to the church in Ephesus, it's to the saints at Cornwall, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse, the first verse of the letter is about as far into the letters we got last week. And uh, today we're gonna get a little, a little deeper into it. We're gonna be looking at Ephesians 1, specifically verses three through 14. So if you have a Bible, a phone, a tablet, some device that you would like to, <clears throat> excuse me, follow along, 
We're gonna be looking at those 12 verses. And I just wanna say right up front, this section of scripture that we're gonna look at, this opening paragraph, has more in it than we can even possibly think about covering today. In fact, I honestly believe, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, that we could spend this whole 13 weeks looking at just these verses that we're gonna dive into today and not completely plumb the depths of them, not mine out all the jewels of the riches of Christ that are contained within this. It's an amazing piece of scripture and we're just gonna be able to kind of hit the surface of it. A friend of mine, many of you know him, Dave Bushnell, he spent many years on our staff, was telling me about a trip several years ago, and he and some friends from around the country were gonna meet and spend some time together. These were friends that had known each other for years, and I said, well, where are you guys meeting? And he said, Washington, D.C., but none of the friends were from Washington, D.C., and I thought that was odd. Why all everybody go to the far side of the country? And I, now, I'll just, full disclosure, I've never been to Washington, D.C. I mean, I've been all over the world, but I've never been to Washington, D.C. I said, why Washington, D.C.? And Dave lit up like a Christmas tree. He said, oh, Washington, D.C. If I can spend the time anywhere, it's Washington, D.C. I said, well, why? And he said, there's so much to see, so much to explore, so much to learn our, 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 our country's history and, and all that. And on top of that, these museums, the Smithsonian, institution has 19 different museums and there's no way you can even cover one in a day let alone a week and we're just going to go and immerse ourselves so there's so much to explore so much to discover so much to learn there's no way possible to take it all in 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 even a week and with that metaphor I was thinking about what we're going to try to do today as we look at this passage of scripture, these 12 verses, it's like us all loading up, on the me- metaphor here, all loading up, going to Washington, D.C. for a half a day, for an afternoon, and say, we're gonna take it all in. Basically say, cool monument, can't go see it. Neat museum, next time. We're gonna have to go over a lot of stuff, we don't have time to cover everything. So today, I'm just telling you right up front, I'm sorry, even last night, we didn't even fill in some of the blanks. I'm telling you, some of you are already, already like breaking out in hives. You're not gonna get all your blanks filled in. All right, there's so much. So instead of spending a lot of time telling you how much there is, let's just jump right into it. Sound good? All right, so he starts off in verse three, Paul does, and he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great line. Now remember, if you were here last week, in Ephesus, Ephesus was known primarily, for a lot of reasons, but primarily for this temple that they had to the goddess Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. People from all over the world would come to this temple to worship Artemis. And Artemis, this, this goddess, you remember, in, as we talked about in Acts 19, these guys got all upset and they started chanting, great is Artemis, uh, Artemis of the, the Ephesians. And there was this, this grand temple. And a guy named Demetrius was trying to get them to, to come together against Paul and this Jesus that he was preaching because he said otherwise, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and she will be robbed of her majesty. And what I find fascinating is here was this, this temple that was known all over the world, this goddess, this great goddess Artemis. And now 2000 years later, you say, Arta who? No one's even heard of her. And the temple doesn't even exist. In fact, there's not even good ruins left of the temple. And as far as her majesty, what majesty? But 2,000 years later, this, this opening phrase, praise be to this God. There are literally billions of people over the face of the planet that are still holding to this God. And he says this, and as he launches into this, what you find is, is that in these verses that we're gonna look at is that he just has this, this, this 
this flow, this nonstop flow of praise and worship to God. It's a celebration of God's accomplishment in Christ. He just tells about all these things that God has done, how he's done these things in Christ. And it's an amazing thing while we will see that we are the recipients of these accomplishments. We are the recipients of these blessings. We are the recipients of these gifts of grace. While we are receiving this, that really it's not about us. Because the very starting point, the genesis of it, the, the source of it, the idea of it, the plan of it, the glory of it, is all about what God has done in Christ Jesus. Uh, one more little side note that's very interesting. These 12 verses that we're gonna look at, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, in the original Greek, they look a little different, not just because it's a different language, but punctuation-wise, different than it does in our English Bibles. Paul wrote this as one continuous run-on sentence. There's no breaks, there's no periods in this. He just does this entire sentence. I mean, like, he did really bad in language arts because he writes this sentence that goes on and on and on. And I thought, before we start taking it apart, let's read it as one run-on sentence the way he wrote it. When he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, and he predestined destined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasures uh, and, and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him. He, uh, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring about all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ in him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to this plan of of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were first uh, the first to uh, hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory and also you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation having believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory What a sentence, what a sentence. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation or an argument with a friend or a spouse and you think, well, as soon as they get done, I'll I'll say something and they just don't come up for air. That's it, I was like, whoa, Pablo, take a break here. You know, put a period in there somewhere. In our English translations, it's broken up in sentences. Not for Paul. It was this one, he just like gets going and as he thinks about a gift, he thinks about another one, he thinks about a blessing, there's another blessing, he thinks about the wonders of God, there's more of these and he just keeps going and going and going. And we are not even gonna be able to cover one sentence today because it's that long and there's so much in it. Back to verse three. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed, past tense, done, finished, it's not pending, it's already done, it's completed, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's saying, let me tell you what God has accomplished in Christ that he has, it's already done. You don't have to worry about this. It's not like we're hoping this someday comes. He says, he has blessed us. And then he talks on this eternal cosmic level that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is what God has done in Christ. But it's not just on this macro level. What we see is that he's done this not only in our world, but for us. 
that he has blessed us. He's blessed you and me. He's blessed Cornwall Church with every spiritual blessing, not just a few of them, not just, well, we'll give you 50%, but you can work towards some more. You know, if you're really good, you might get 70%. No, no, no. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is yours and it's there in the heavenly realm. And he's done this for us. And what we begin to see is we see what God has done eternally in the cosmos and he's done in us that we're a microcosm of what he's done in the eternal spiritual realm. And that we can find our story contained in the larger story. What God has done, the redemption of all things, the fulfillment of his purpose in Christ in heaven and on earth. He says that while it's done in heaven and on earth for all of eternity, it's being done in me as well. The redemption that he's brought about and bringing about in me, the fulfillment of his purposes in me are happening, that every spiritual blessing is happening, not only in this world, but in me. And then he launches in to these blessings upon blessings and he gives us a for example. We're just gonna start looking at a couple verses and we're gonna slow down and really dig in. And this is where I say every single little piece that we talk about today, I think could be a sermon in and of itself. Verse four, he says this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. For he chose us. Now this has got some, some terminology from the Old Testament because Israel had been the chosen nation. Remember now he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, that he comes in and he speaks to the Jewish people, but he speaks to the Greeks, to the Gentiles as well, and they take this and it spreads throughout Asia Minor. And now he's using this word chosen for them as well. They had never been chosen before. That was the Israelites. That was God's chosen people. But now he's saying, we are chosen. And as I was thinking about how God chose us, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, this week, there was a choice that was made. Some of you have heard of a man, a young man named Zion Williamson. A choice was made. He was the first choice of the, of the Pelicans at the NBA draft this week. And why is it that they would choose him? Well, think about this. Why is it that we would ever choose anything? Think back to when you were a child, when you were choosing teams on the playground. Think back to the roller rink, roller rink when you were choosing who to do couples skate with. Think back when you were putting together teams to do a science project, a research project. Why would you choose people? There's one of two reasons. One of the reasons you choose someone to be on your team, you choose someone to, to be in the project, is because you think they will be more of an asset than a liability to whatever it is, whether it's kickball, whether it's softball, whether it's a research project, whether it's a science project, they will be an asset. And you might even choose them, not because of who they are, but because of the brain they have. Or maybe it's not because of a, an asset liability thing. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe they're not gonna be a big asset, but they're your best friend and you just wanna be with them. She's not a good roller skater, but look at her. I mean, you know, it's like, that's, I don't choose her because of her skating ability. Uh -uh. No, and so there are these things that we choose because they're gonna be an asset to us or because there's a relational connection there. And when I think about the idea that God would choose us, I think, okay, which was it? Was it the asset or the relational connection? Now think about this. God, who knows everything about you and me. He knows all of our strengths. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows our propensities for failure. And not only that, not only does he know what we've done, he knows what we will do. He knows our motives, he knows our thoughts, he knows our attitudes, he knows, knows our envy, our anger, our lust, our jealousy, all of the, he knows all of that. 
He knows how we can be self-centered, how we can be selfish, how we can be rebellious. And I ask you, do you think God is choosing us because of the asset that we can bring to his team, the kingdom of God, or because of the relationship, because we're gonna be such a great follower of his? And I think if God knows all that about you, and listen, if I knew all that about you, I love you. I'm your pastor, but I wouldn't pick you. <laughs> no way. And if you knew all that about me, you would not choose me either. This is amazing that God would choose us knowing all of that. Jesus says in John 15, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. And why would God do that? Really, we don't bring anything. We don't have a big asset to bring to the kingdom of God. And relationally, man, we're flaky at best. And then he gives us a clue of why. He chose us in him. Now, if you read through Ephesians, or even if you listen to this long sentence that I just read, there are some recurring themes. There's some words that come back and again and again. And even in this opening section, this concept of us in him, nine times in those 12 verses, in him, in Christ, through him, through his blood, you know, in the one. It's not about us, it's about who we are in Christ. And this is a whole, man, this is a piece that we'll get into later, but who we are in our union with Christ. That it's not because of us, but it's because of Christ and God chose us in him. You think about the people that God chose and think about when he chose them. Moses was what, 80 years old. God chose him, said go take my people. Isaiah, man he was old, he must have been like 56 or something. He stood there before the Lord and he says, you know, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst people of unclean lips. And God had the cherubim take the coal and touch his lip and he says, and he said, here am I, send me. And he sends him, he chooses him. Paul was in his 30s when on that Damascus road, Jesus chose him. The disciples were probably all in their early 20s, maybe even late teenage years. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was probably 13, 14 years old. Samuel, just a little boy, maybe seven, eight, nine years old when he heard the voice of the Lord. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Jeremiah, God says, I chose you even before I formed you in your mother's womb. And Paul comes along and says, that ain't nothing. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, you just spend some time thinking about that, that before God created the world, and I don't care if you're a seven-day literalist or if you're a billion years, whatever, before there was anything, God, the infinite, eternal God, chose you. I mean, that is mind-boggling, that while he's still putting together Pegasus in the constellation, while he's still developing the whole concept of photosynthesis in the trees, while he's still putting together this crazy thing called a platypus, before any of that is created, he says, I have chosen you in Christ. How can that be? Because as we've studied in John 1, Jesus is eternal. And before creation, he was, and he is, and all things were created by him. Colossians 1, all things were created by him and through him. And it was in him that we were chosen before the world was created. Yeah, there, you ask people, you know, what's your favorite aspect about God? Well, love and grace, of course, but people will talk about his omnipotence, that he's all powerful, the almighty God, and that's wonderful. This concept of eternity, that, that he's just no beginning, no end, that's mind boggling, that's hard to understand. You know the one that doesn't get a lot of attention that I think is amazing? Is that God is infinite. Very different than eternal. Eternal has to do with 
you know, our concept of, of time. There's no beginning, no end. Infinite has to do with capacity. That there's this infinite capacity. That's why St. Augustine would say, God in his infinite greatness can love each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. That he can give all of his attention, all of his love to you, and that in no way diminishes all of his love and attention to you. So when you think about that, while God is putting together the whole cosmos and the world and all things, he can give his attention completely to this one who would be born years later and be sitting in a church in Cornwall in, in, in 2019. That he has this infinite capacity to do that and he chose us in him before the creation of the world. And it wasn't just this random choice. And there was a purpose. Chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. And that's for some of you going, oh no. He's gonna unchoose me. <laughs> because we know ourselves. Well, let's just, let's just kind of think about this for a minute. Holy and blameless. Now, he's going again with some, some Old Testament language. When there was a sacrifice that was given to God, it was holy, set apart for God's purposes. It wasn't for ordinary use, it was for God. And that, that one-year-old lamb was to be without blemish, perfect, like blameless. And this idea that there would be the sacrifice that would be an act of worship to God. And all of those were, were pointing to another one, that Jesus would come. And he would come not for the will of man, not for his own will, but for the will of the Father, that he would be set apart for God's purposes. He would be holy, and he alone would be blameless. And because he is the holy, blameless sacrifice, now, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That it's the righteousness of Christ that's holy and blameless that over us, so that we are holy and blameless in his sight. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, this imputed righteousness. It's put on us, you know, standing in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne, not because of me, but because of Christ. I mean, do you see the depth of the beauty of this? That God chose us before anything was created in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then you notice there's a period. Paul didn't put this in there. There are these two words, in love. So the question is, does that idea of in love go with verse four or go with verse five? Is it like a prefix for what's coming in verse five or is it a suffix of what just happened in verse four? And apparently no one could figure that out, so they split the difference. Put the period on the side of verse four, but then you'll notice verse five starts afterwards, and so it becomes a part of verse five. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's talking about verse four, that he's done all this in love for us, or that in love he's gonna do this. What it shows is God loves us. In love, it says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now this whole thing predestined, some people get a little squirrely on that and like, oh, I don't know, hold on, we're gonna come back to that. But, but I don't think we should be so freaked out by this word. Predestined simply means thought through in advance, decided upon beforehand. Uh, let me give you a kind of a, a simple example of this. Uh, several years ago, Pastor Randy, uh, part of our church, Pastor Randy and his wife Pam, uh, were gonna build a home 
And they had this concept, this idea, this vision that the centerpiece of their home would not be a television, would not be a fireplace. The centerpiece of their home would be a table around which family and friends could, could fellowship and eat and laugh and have great conversations and, and build relationships. So when they were designing their home, they went to the architect and they were saying, we want all this, but we want this dining room to be such. So they had already thought this through and it was designed before any foundation was even dug or any, any uh, studs were put up or any, anything was built. They had already designed that. And then they went to some friends of theirs, one of the, a friend of theirs, who is a, a custom furniture designer and builder and said, we want a specific custom table, dining room table built for this room for a specific purpose. So this house is being built kind of around the dining room and a custom table is being built and they had this all in mind. And they thought that in this room, around this table, there will be incredible dinners with our children and with our grandchildren, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers, with people that are far from God. And there will be laughter and there will be deep discussions and there will be discovering. And they had it all pictured. It was all predestined. So let's say at Thanksgiving, when their family is all sitting around this table having an incredible time, children, grandchildren, they're laughing and talking deeply. They had predestined that before it ever happened. Does that make sense? So let's not get so freaked out about it. So let's all go to their house and have dinner. All right. So we're predestined, he predestined us to be adopted. Oh, this is amazing. Because again, he's speaking to the Gentiles. And they had been on the outskirts. They had been on the outside. The Israelites were God's people. That was his family. They were cast out. But now he said, no, no, no. God always had in mind to adopt you, to bring you into the family, to belong to him, to have a relationship with him. Yes, you've known God as a creator, and he is the creator. You've known God as the king and the Lord, and he is to be reverenced and to be followed and be submitted to. You know God as the judge, and he will have the last word. But when you're adopted, suddenly there's this new relationship. Yes, he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the redeemer. He is the Lord. He is the king. He is the judge, but he is also your father. And Jesus would teach us to say, Abba, father, dad, papa. And when you begin to understand that God has brought us in and said, listen, I want you to have complete access with great comfort to come to me and say, dad, papa has adopted us as sons. Now, some of you are saying, see, that's what I hate about the Bible. All this sexist language. Why couldn't we have some inclusive language? Why couldn't they put some daughters in there? Whoa, 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 whoa. This is so cool. Because in Romans days, slaves could not own property. In Roman times, daughters could not receive an inheritance. Only sons. See, this isn't sexist at all. This is so inclusive to say, and Paul would say later, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And you've been adopted in as a son in that context, that you are a joint heir. There's equal footing for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're free. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. You've been adopted in as a son. You have an inheritance. You get the full rights, joint heirs with Christ. Okay, thanks. One person's excited about that. <laughs> Everyone else is like, all right. Adopted as his sons. And here it is again. Be because we're so great. 
because we're such an asset to the team. No, it's through Jesus Christ. And it's in accordance with his pleasure and will. I love that. Because it's not like God says, oh, these creations. They're awful. I better redeem them. This obligation, this begrudge. You know, he said, this is, this is my pleasure. That's why in Isaiah 53, it says it pleased God to put all this iniquity on Christ. That's why in Hebrews it says um, that, that it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That God says, I find great pleasure in bringing my sons and daughters, my creation into my family to redeem them, to experience this grace. And this was all a part of my plan. It was a part of my will from the beginning, from before the foundations of the world. And Paul just goes on and says, while we are recipients, while, while we are the ones who are blessed, while we've been given all of these gifts, while the wonders of God are poured out on us, it's really not about us to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Grace means that we could never earn this. We could never deserve this. It was costly, but it was given freely. Listen, if you think somehow you earn or you deserve what God has for you, that's not grace. That might be wages. That might be remuneration. That might be, uh, you know, uh, paying you back, but it's not grace. Grace is receiving that which you could never, ever acquire on your own. And it says that he's just freely given this to us in Christ. Praise God for his grace. Later, and we don't get time, have time to go into verse seven and eight, but it talks about how he has, he has lavished us with the grace of God. Just freely lavished, just poured out on us. A way of, of, um, of translating that whole idea of how God has freely given his grace, how he's, he's lavished the riches of his grace, is, is to use the word, be, he has begraced us. It's a term that we wouldn't use, but he's begraced us. When I read that in one of the commentaries, this idea of, of God begracing us, I, my mind, and I know, again, this shows my age, my mind went back to the 70s, and it was either Ktel or Ronco, I'm not sure, but there was a device you could order called the Bedazzler. Yeah, so you remember the bedazzler? The bedazzler, one of the greatest inventions apparently of all times. The bedazzler was nothing more than a pop rivet tool. It's just that the rivets were decorative and with some fake rhinestones. So the whole concept in the commercial is take an ordinary shirt and bedazzle it. Take ordinary pants and bedazzle them. Take your ordinary purse and bedazzle it. Like take something ordinary and make it extraordinary with these pop rivets. And as I heard that word be grace, I was thinking, it's like taking someone ordinary like me and you. And God does his gracious work and be graces us. <laughs> and he takes us from ordinary to extraordinary because of his goodness. Now listen, you begin to see, I mean, and we're, we're having to just fly through this and we've got to stop here because we've got to go on to some other stuff. You begin to understand how much there is in this passage and Paul is just blown away by the glorious riches that have been poured out on us. And while we're filled with all this, he just lists off gift after gift after gift. Here's a cursory look at some of the things that we've got. We are blessed, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're begraced, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're included, we're saved, we're marked, we're sealed, we're bequeathed. That word is not in there, but it's that we've been given this inheritance. 
But none of this is because of us. What you find throughout this passage is that the centerpiece is Christ. We have all of these blessings in Christ. God has accomplished all this in Christ. He's given all of it to us in Christ. And we could just sit with just these, this portion of this one sentence and for, I mean, the rest of our life be filled with the awe and the wonder of what God has done for us. Now, we're gonna go on and um, I just wanna say, for the next few minutes, we're gonna swim a little bit more in the deep end on, on a, an issue. And for some of you who don't wanna do that, hang with the verses we just talked about, sit around, check it out, and just be dazzled by God's goodness. I do want us to talk about something that I already referenced, but sometimes is kind of a, a little bit of a sticking point, a hang up, a confusing, confusing thing. And I hope that this doesn't confuse you more. Verse 11 says this, in him, there we are again, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This whole concept of predestination, and this really comes to a question of the ages, a question that has really been discussed even outside of faith circles, but especially inside on theological terms. And the question is this, is there free will? Do we have a choice? Do we get to make decisions? Or is there predestination? Things are pre-decided, pre-scripted, pre-scribed. And I'll just say, and, and I won't get into a lot of it outside of faith circles, but in, in uh, followers of Christ, for hundreds and literally thousands of years, this question of is there, is there choice, is there free will, or is it all pre predestined and, and predecided by God? This has been discussed and disagreed with. There have been volumes that have been written on both sides of this. This has been a dividing line. This has been a defining line. This has been um, landed on, on different sides of this, this question by godly men on, and women on both sides, scholarly people on both sides, using scripture on both sides for hundreds and thousands of years. I just wanna clear all that up in the next six or so minutes. Is that? Okay. <laughs> Is that we good with that? So I'm going to answer all your questions you've ever had about this. All right. Um, it's a joke. <laughs> let me first of all, because some of you are like, I, I haven't really thought much about this. Let me, let me uh, explain the issue and go to the extremes of the two stances. Okay? The extreme. So on the one extreme, let, let's talk about the whole concept of, of predestined. Of course, God is sovereign. That's why we worship him. The providential hand of God is at work. He, scripture right there says, he has predestined this. Before the foundations of the earth, he already chose this. If he's already said, so this extreme side of things where God has predestined everything, he's already set it into motion, he's already got it planned out, leaves you with some questions then. So then, do I ever make any decisions or the decisions I make have already been decided for me and I'm just following through on that? Does what I decide make any difference? And there would be some that are so far this direction on this pendulum that they would say, and there, I heard this from a man that I highly respect as a theologian, as a brother in Christ, and as, a, as an intellectual. And he would say, even the evil and the worst things in this world, God has designed and implemented as part of his plan. I, I struggle with that. No, I'm kind of giving away my stance on this. But, but, but the far extreme would be that. With that, then the question that I would come back to is, then can I ever be held responsible for anything that I do? 
Because if God already preordained that I was gonna do this, how can you blame me for that? I'm just doing what was already set up for me. Or another problem with this is, then why should I try, why should I even pray? Why would I pray? Why, why would I strive to be anything that God wants me to be because it's already been preordained? And for that matter, why would I even care? I mean, it says in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. So it sounds like there's not a thing I could do to add one day or take one day away from my life. So why eat healthy? Why not smoke a bunch? Why not ride around without a seatbelt or a helmet? Why not just be reckless, drive a Pinto? Whatever it might be. Okay, so that's for the one extreme side. On the other end of the pendulum is this idea that there is a blank slate ahead of you. A blank page, there is no plan. You get to decide. You get to determine what this life looks like. God doesn't even know. It's a movie that hasn't been filmed yet. As it's going, it's reality TV in its best. It's happening in real time and we don't even know. Listen, you can't go to very many uh, graduation ceremonies without hearing someone, some valedictorian, some speaker, quote the famous poem Invictus by um, William Ernest Henley. Last two lines of that, that famous poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That it's all up to me. Whatever I decide, this is, this is my, God doesn't have a plan. He has no say, I make these decisions. Now, if that's the case, that freaks me out. I don't know that I want to live a life that I've planned for myself. Because I know the things I think. I know where I'm short-sighted. I know how selfish I can be. I know how I, I can mess up. And even if I got it all right, if everyone gets a blank slate, everyone gets a, a clean tablet, and their lives interject, inter, intersect with mine, that their stupid decisions they make will maybe throw off mine, even though I did all the right stuff. So you have to ask this question, it's the age old question. Is there free will and decision and choice? Or is it all predestination? Is there predestination or is there free will? And according to scripture, let me just answer this question, is there free will or is there, uh, is there free will or is there predestination? The answer according to scripture is yes. <laughs> yes. Because scripture talks about the divine, providential, predestined hand of God's, the sovereign God, and the choice and the decisions that we are responsible for. Let me give you an example. There was a time when Peter is talking to the people, the men of Jerusalem, Acts chapter three, and he says, talking about Christ, you disown, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that our murderer be released to you. You're the ones that made the decision. You'll take Barabbas over Jesus. That was you guys. You made that decision. You killed the author of life. That was your decision. You did that. But God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. We saw it. We saw the decisions you made. We know what you did. You made those decisions. Well, that sounds a lot like free will. Verse 18, he says, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Christ would suffer. Now, wait a second. So you're saying, and we're not so bad, that that was what God had preordained anyway. Okay, that sounds like predestination. So in verse 19, Paul says, so repent. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, wait, 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 wait a second. First you say, I made this decision, but you said it fulfilled God's plan, and now I'm supposed to repent. 
for fulfilling God's plan. What is it? Yes. You see, when you take this, I had a friend, we were discussing this a few months ago, and he said this very, very sarcastically. He wasn't holding to this theory. But he said, if all you have is this predestination that God has ordained everything and that we don't have a say in it, then Judas is not a bad guy at all. Because what Judas did by betraying Christ was fulfilling what God had already, we ought to, we ought to thank Judas for being obedient, otherwise we wouldn't be saved. He's a hero. Not, okay, not, he was joking about that. All right, that's not what he believes. Even in this letter that we're looking at in Ephesians, the first three chapters talk about how we are predestined to be like Christ. And the last three chapters talk about how we should strive with every fiber of our being to be like Christ. But if we're predestined, then why would we strive? J.I. Packer, who's just a, a, a giant intellectually and theologically, he's, he's with the Lord. He actually knows the answer to this because he's with the Lord right now. But he said before he died, I was talking with Professor Tom Burke who studied under him. Packer said, the Bible speaks of predestination and speaks of free will. And his response was this, could it be, could it be that the mind of God thinks at a different level than our mind? Could it be that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, yes, even as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And could it be that in the mind of God, what in our little four pounds of gray matter seems like con contradictory truths, in the mind of God, it works together in perfect harmony. We just don't have the capacity to fully understand that. There's some wisdom there. Timothy Keller used this illustration. He said, light, light behaves as waves and as particles. Both. The photons are these particles that it's expressed in waves. So is, is light a wave or is it a particle? The answer is yes. And, and if light doesn't have mass, how is it that gravity can bend it? All this, I'm just way above my thinking level. But he says, yes, light is wave and light is particle. I like what Andy Stanley said. He says, God is in control, but he's not controlling. You know, I, I, I'm not expecting to end the arguments and disagreements on this, but I think what we can rest assured in this is that you are free and God has a plan. You're free to make choices and there are consequences and responsibility that goes with that. But God has a plan and you can have confidence that God is at work. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, another brilliant man, uh, in his book he said this, his will may be disobeyed, but his ultimate purpose cannot be frustrated. God will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. He has in Christ. And we can decide, are we gonna be right along with him? Oh man, I'm so far out of time. Okay, let's skip the rest of the sermon. Um, uh, okay, one more thing though, real quick. Um, so this whole idea of, so are we predestined or did we choose? It's both then. It, what we'll see in Ephesians where it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. A dead man can't do anything. It was what God called us to life. But God calls us to repent and he calls us to believe. That's our choice. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a Calvinist, who would lean on the side of predestination. He was not a hyper-Calvinist, but he was a Calvinist. He would often pray these words. God, save the elect, then go elect some more. 
<laughs> like just keep bringing more and more in. Okay, um, uh, Wes, skip to verse 13. All right, sorry, this is where you have to just like, sorry, blank's not gonna get filled in. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, something we did, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, earnest money. Like, like he's, he's put this down, a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. Oh man, we don't have time to go into that until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What God has accomplished in Christ. And what we see through all of this, this passage, that we, this sentence that we can't even get into is that we are rich in Christ by God's grace for his glory. What God has done, what he's begraced us with, what he's lavished on us in Christ, all turns around to glorify him. Let's go back to this verse one more time in 11. In him we were also chosen. Praise God for that. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, God is in control. God is sovereign. God has a plan. But instead of saying, then I can check out. I've got nothing to do. Why not say, because of how great he is, because of what he's done for me, I will do everything in my being, everything in my power to keep in step with his spirit, to walk according to his will, to allow him to accomplish in my life the things he created me to accomplish, the person he created me to be before the foundations of the world. 